2, The Power of More from Brockmeier and Zalo. Innovation Thinking Hello, today's episode we are talking about a nature-based economy. We have the great pleasure to welcome Ralph Shami today. He is Assistant Director of the International Monetary Fund. Before we get our guest into the conversation, I would like to introduce the co-host of the podcast, Mr. Dieter Brockmeier, the innovation expert at the Diplomatic World Institute. Hello, Dieter. How are you? I'm fine, as always, when we are sitting together, so nothing new on that frontier. Uh, and, of course, as always, I'm very happy to have a special, a special guest here, Ralf Shami. When I met him uh, at, a, at a conference, Uh, he was criticized for trying to give uh, nature a value um, and a, a monetary value. And uh, his reply, I really liked it because he said, hey, it has a value already and that's zero and that's how we deal with the nature. So I'm uh, very, uh, very thrilled and very inter uh, curious what he is going to tell us about his current project. Yeah. Now to our special guest, Ralf Shami. Hello, Ralph. Thanks very much for joining us today. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Uh, wonderful to be on your program, and um, I'm doing fine. Um, and thank you, thank you for allowing me a chance to uh, talk about, uh, you know, how we go ahead and build together a nature-positive and people-positive economy, and for giving nature a voice on your program. Very good. Before we give nature a prize and you were criticized for that, we would like to hear what are you exactly doing at the International Monetary Fund? Sure. So I have I've been at the IMF for almost 25 years. It's a long time. <laughs> and uh, while at the IMF, I pretty much uh, did pretty much everything. I currently I'm in the um, I'm on sabbatical, but before I went on sabbatical, I was in the Institute for Capacity Development which is responsible for the training of our 1,800 PhDs, as well as the training and technical assistance for member countries of the IMF, and that's the 190 countries. Um, so my job was on the design and implementation of training programs, be it in macro or finance or whatever. Uh, usually that's the training side of the IMF. And before that, I was mission chief, division chief for fragile states, um, these are states, countries where governments uh, having uh, being challenged in terms of being being able to provide uh, public uh, basics of public goods to its people, and the country would have experienced some kind of a civil strife. Uh, I was on the ground for five years in those countries, um, and I wrote a book about it called Macroeconomic Policy in Fragile States how different it is from the design and the conduct of, of macro policy in countries that are not deemed fragile. I've also done surveillance. I'm a researcher. I continue to publish papers in, um, you know, sort of, uh, basically I'm a financial economist um, with expertise in financial markets, but I'm also an expert in remittances, migration, and fragile states. As for what I'm doing now, which is probably what most interests your your audience is uh, it was a really it started as a hobby in 2017 which is uh, valuing natural capital or ie nature services 
and trying to create an economy that uh, puts a living and thriving nature at its core, rather than treating nature as an afterthought, or worse yet, only valuing a dead nature. Okay, and how does that work? I mean, do you putting a price tag on a tree or? Uh, no, actually, there's already a price tag on a tree. Um, when you ask people what is the value of a tree, they think of it as timber. Cut it down and sell it, sell it as timber. But when I say what is the value of a tree, I'm asking you what is the value of a tree living for itself? Meaning I look at outside my window. Uh, I live in a beautiful area in Maryland, and are these beautiful trees, they live for themselves. But despite the fact they live for themselves, there's actually a monetary value for them living for themselves that we can, we can use to protect them and to create sustainable and shared wealth for everyone else. So it's, it almost feels like magic, but it's not. It's just magical. Well, give us an example of what you're doing exactly or what we can, how we can uh, picture what you're doing. Sure. sure. So uh, let, me, let me start with an example. Um, you know, the oil-producing countries... For, for thousands of years, sat on a, what's called the black goo. They didn't know what to do with it. It was just in the ground, and it was a nuisance until Henry Ford needed to move his car from A to B, and he needed the black goo to power his car. So that black goo acquired a price, went from price of zero to price $100 a barrel of oil. The world today needs to fight climate change. According to the scientists, nature can help us fight climate change by at least 38%. That's in the latest IPCC report. So whoever is sitting on nature can now provide the services that the world need, that the world needs to fight climate change. So before we were sitting on you know, countries that had abundance of nature, be it trees, be it uh, in, the, in the ocean, seagrass, salt marsh, mangroves, And now the science also tells us fauna plays a key role, elephants, whales, and so forth. They thought they, were, they had no value beyond their intrinsic value. But the world turns out to need those living systems in order to really incredibly reduce climate risk. That means the world is willing to pay those countries and those communities and indigenous people that are sitting on this and they have protected that nature They're willing to pay him a price to help them fight climate change. Okay. So let me be, actually, let me be more, more, if you like, more kind of, uh, uh, um, let's drill down through an example. A seagrass, which is the latest project I'm working on. Seagrass is, uh, grows, is a, is a, you know, uh, grows exponentially. The science tells us that seagrass for, uh, for about 50 years grows at an exponential rate and then continues to grow at a constant rate forever. That is the work of the famous, if you like, Carlos Duarte, the father of this work. That's in his scientific papers. But And the seagrass is a huge absorber of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which it sequesters in the sediments and in the seagrass. It turns out we, so how much, if you, because the world needs to absorb carbon from the atmosphere, along with reducing our carbon emission, the, the, the demand for carbon has led to a price of carbon on the market today. If you were to log on, if you go to Google and you type in 
carbon dioxide ETS European system, European trading uh, system for carbon, you'll find that the a ton of carbon is worth about is worth about a hundred dollars a day. Meaning, if you can credibly reduce a ton of carbon today, someone is willing to pay you a hundred dollars. So the seagrass, we can now use that price of carbon to go back and say, well, the seagrass grabs carbon over over 50 years at an exponential rate and at a constant rate forever. What is the value of the carbon services of seagrass globally? If you were to do that, you would find out that the, the value, the, just from carbon sequestration alone of seagrass globally, is worth a trillion dollars. Trillion, not billion, trillion. Now, how does that work? Well, I'm working with the government of the Bahamas. The scientists, as of three months ago, published a paper in Nature Journal showing that the Bahamas is sitting on 30% of the global seagrass. Imagine. They did a mapping of the seafloor of the Bahamas using a very interesting technique, which we can discuss later. And they found out that the Bahamas is sitting on about 30% of the global mass of known seagrass. So for the Bahamas, potentially, that seagrass is worth a couple of hundred billion dollars. Imagine. Mm -hmm. So overnight, the Bahamas, by, by looking after its seagrass, it can provide the carbon services of its seagrass. It doesn't sell the seagrass. It just basically sells the carbon services of the seagrass, can get revenue in the billions of dollars, which would change their lives completely because they were devastated a few years ago by Hurricane Dorian, which decimated half of the half of the island and put them in 50% debt to GDP. That's what I'm talking about. So basically they are selling carbon credits to, to companies. Exactly. So what the way it would work, exactly. So what happened is the world, um, it started with Kyoto Protocols and then it took off really during the, the, after the Paris Accord. The world made commitments to go carbon zero or negative or neutral by a, a certain date and time. If the world had just made a statement, well, we're going to go carbon neutral by sometime in the future, the price of carbon would be zero. But they made a commitment to go carbon zero or neutral or negative by 2050, most of them. And that was supposed to, that was predicated on actions that the world and corporations were supposed to take at that point in time. But as Greta said, a few years ago, it was a lot of blah, blah, blah. There was all talk. The world didn't do anything. The, the date and time moved against us. The need to avoid the increase in temperature by 1.5 moved from meeting it by 2050 to 2040. So there was more talk and, and frenzy and, and people worried, what are we going to do? And, base, and we need now more technology, better technology to grab carbon from the atmosphere. That means from a financial from a finance point of view, the demand for such a technology that can sequester carbon became more urgent. But again, we didn't do anything. So now we're talking about trying to avoid reaching the 1.5 by 2030, which is in seven years from now. That means the demand for carbon sequestration and reduction is skyrocketed. And as a result, the price of carbon went from zero to over $100 
per ton. In fact, I know companies, I'm not going to name them on your program, but I'm, you can find out, are paying $600 to $1,200 per ton from to get carbon from a carbon capture machine. That's how desperate they are to meet their carbon commitments. Mm-hmm. But the machine remains a brand new machine that we know nothing about, that has few years in operation. We don't know if we can even scale it. We don't even know if it does the job well. And in front of us is Mother Nature has been around for three billion years. Sorry, I need to understand that. What is that machine doing? It's grabbing carbon. It's called a, it's called a direct air carbon capture. Who it invented it? It sucks carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah, but who invented it? Uh, um, technology companies that figure out there's money in this. So a private owner or... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Owner. It's all private. It's oh, all there, private. Are, there are a couple of companies that are, that are trying or that are developing in this direction. Right. And, and everybody's because the money is in it. So everybody's piling in and, and people tell me all the time, so what is the difference between that and nature? I said, day and night. <laughs> we, we probably need both. But the carbon capture machine... It's just basically supposed to be theoretically grab carbon from the atmosphere and do what with it? Well, pump it back into the ground. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds, into, it into sounds really interesting. It sounds really interesting. A carbon capture machine. It's like a gold producer, isn't it? Yeah. It, it just grabs, you know, it, it has a technology. It, they can do it a number of ways. They can do it cryogenically. They can do it direct capture. Then these technologies now are around, but the, the issue with them is... They are, un, you know, despite all the rhetoric, they're not scalable at this point in time. Mm-hmm. They do very little, and they, they, they use a lot of energy to do so. And two, uh, they are untried. I mean, we, don't know the, we don't know the side effects of them. We can't even guarantee you whatever they do with that carbon can stay there. Because when nature grabs carbon from the atmosphere, it's there forever unless you, unless you tinker with nature. Meaning when the ocean grabs carbon and it's sitting below a thousand meters, it's there forever. Unless you dredge the ocean or you mine the ocean or you disturb the ocean or you cut the vegetation, it's always there. So, the concept I know is uh, that it is uh, that carbon is transformed into stone and that they even try to uh, get this stone uh, for, to use it for construction. So that's, uh, that's another concept uh, that's out. Yes, I'm familiar. I'm quite familiar with it. I have a you know a science background. My degree is first in sciences, and I've been able to access that and look at the technology itself. And the idea, they, this is the use uh, they inject it into a basalt rock. And, uh, and But when you look at how much the energy they need in order to be able to inject that carbon into the rock uh, and how much rock you need to really make a difference, um, you start to see reality is, especially we're in the 11th hour. I'm not saying we don't need technology. I'm saying in front of us is Mother Nature, or as okay. a dear friend of mine calls it, Earth, Earth Tech. And, and Earth Tech is saying, well, leave me alone. I can help you. And the, even the scientists are saying the Earth can help us with at least 40%. But, you know, boys with toys, we like we like toys. We're like, oh, but, you know, this is technology. I'm like, yes. But, you know, maybe because it's Mother Earth, we don't like to be mothered. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You know, I, I remember I used to run to my mom when I would get in trouble. And, of course, my mom would do two things, would say, it's okay, Ralph. But she also gave me good advice. The two things that mothers do, they protect you, but they also give you good advice. So Mother Earth is saying, I can help you if you look after me. 
look after me because you haven't been looking after me, you humans. You've been treating me as if I'm an externality, right? That's what we call it in economics, and I'm guilty of it myself, having practiced it. <laughs> so um, if you were to look after me, I'll look after you. And science now, IPCC report, which is really the culmination of the work of all the scientists and stamped by the government, saying nature can help us with at least 38% in, in kind of meeting the, the climate challenge. So technology has a role to play. But my concern with the technology, if we just base it on technology, it yet again divorces us from nature. We start to think again that can replace nature with technology, which is the essence of why we are where we are in this predicament, because we we kind of behaved as if we don't belong to nature. And okay, I understand that, that this is a big system with a, with a level of complexity, and you're giving it a measurable price at one point so that we can steer it into the right direction. Is that correct? Uh, yes, the, but the, the price that I'm giving today is based on a dynamical system. So what I, what I, what I do, colleagues, yeah. So what I do and my colleagues who let me even explain it in more scientific terms, we, we do what is called science-based finance. So you need to first understand the physiology of the asset. So before I can value the seagrass, I need to understand how does seagrass grow? Right? You need to know how does seagrass grow? What is the physiology of seagrass? Well, the seagrass grows vertically and grows horizontally. And it grows at an exponential rate. That's pure science. That has nothing to do with anything. And then the scientists would tell you that's, for example, if you look at the work of Carlos Duarte and colleagues, will tell you that the, the seagrass grabs so much carbon per area, per hectare, per whatever. Then based on that, we can, we can use Uh, technique, I mean, you know, sort of mathematical models to build the carbon profile over the lifetime of the seagrass. So it's very much a conversation, which is, by the way, a first between finance people and scientists. We're sitting side by side and say, show me what you're doing. Okay. And the scientists were asking me, why are you asking very, me this? Question? I'm a very simple and naive guy. So if the, the seagrass is capturing the carbon, yeah. what next? Well, so, the carbon is now captures. What's happening to the seagrass? It's growing at an exponential rate. Ongoing, growing, growing, growing. For 50 years. For 50 years. And then at a constant rate forever. So it's a big carbon sink. In the exactly. Okay. exactly. Okay. Unlike, unlike mangroves. Mangroves don't grow exponentially. Because okay. I also work on mangroves. So what we do, for example, we study each species separately. When we did the work on the elephants, we sat down with the scientists who discovered the work of the elephants in the forests of Africa. That's Fabio Berzaghi. His paper is in Nature, and he has a new paper now in, in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, where he shows it's not only... So his first paper, for example, was that the elephants in the forest of the Congo Basin enhance carbon sequestration in the trees between 7 and 14%, depending on the density of the elephant per square kilometer. As long as that density is less than, let's say, up to one elephant per square kilometer, elephants can enhance carbon sequestration in the trees between 7 and 14%. So and every, ho every household needs to have an elephant. Yes. And not oh, only that, I get it. Not, not only that, the beauty of it, the, you, you, you leave the elephants alone. 
It's not like you tie the elephant to a tree. By the elephant living its life as nature meant it to be, it will help sequester carbon in the, in the trees. That's just nature longing for itself, living for itself, but you get to benefit from it. That's the beauty of, that is what I'm talking about. So when people say, Ralph, you're putting the price on nature, I said, no, I'm recognizing the services of nature that we took for granted. That we, we, we see, if you go back to the age of enlightenment, what's the so-called age of enlightenment, let's take the work of Francis Bacon, for example. Mm-hmm. He is credited with saying, I should say he should be debited, with saying that we were endowed with nature with infinite commodities. And that's a deadly statement because that meant you can cut, pollute, extract with impunity. What we're finding out is nature is finite. And, what, and at this point in time, what nature is saying is, you've taken me for granted for so long. You've polluted my, my oceans with impunity. You, you killed everything that breathes in my ocean. <laughs> and I can't help you anymore. You need to leave me alone so I can recuperate, so I can continue to look after you. Technically, what we're saying, if you want the ocean, which is you know, 75, 80% of, you know, of, the, of the planet, to continue to be a carbon sink, we need to look after the ocean because the ocean is unable to continue doing its job. And if it stops doing its job, forget all the carbon machines in the world you're going to construct, we're going to die. That's what, that's what my work is doing, is saying, recognizing the value of a living nature. So some people come to me, like I was presenting somewhere, and one, one person said, well, I'm appalled, you're putting a price on nature. <laughs> and I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you work for free? Do you work for free? And she said, no. I said, then why, sh- why should the elephant work for free? You allow yourself to be paid a salary for your services. Do you ask your company to value your intrinsic value? I noticed she had a ring around her finger. I said, are you, may I ask, are you married? She said, yeah. I said, does your company recognize what a wonderful wife you are? Or a wonderful mom or daughter? Do they care? No. You're an economist like me. You're providing an economic services and they pay you a salary. It's okay for you to accept that. But when I tell you pay the elephant for her services, you, you are appalled. Yet you want to sing songs about the elephant and write poetry about the elephant and okay. watch them die with impunity. Okay. So that lady is married and has a, has a ring around the finger and I'm worried about the elephant union. What is the fair <laughs> price? What is the fair price for an hour of elephant? An hour? I haven't calculated, but I can tell you this. Okay, um, I, I, can, I can actually calculate it for you, but um, an elephant, the, the lifetime earning. So if, if you ask the elephant, if the elephant, uh, elephants do speak, we just don't speak their language. But let's say we can understand their language. The elephant would It's say, the same hey, what? problem with the margins. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, the problem, what I'm doing, I'm translating languages. I'm an interpreter of languages, if you like. That's all I'm doing. The elephant would say, why don't you pay me a salary for keeping you alive by sequestering carbon in the trees? And if you say, well, how much would you like me to pay you? The elephant would say, the expected, the present value of, in the discounted expected present value of my lifetime earnings just from carbon alone is in today's money is about $3 million. Now that could be 
roughly if you want to spread it over the 60 years, maybe that's about $50,000 a year. That would be her salary. But that's, remember, the elephant does a lot more than just grabbing carbon for you in the tree. The elephant is referred to by the scientists that study elephants as the forest engineers. And the way they grab carbon in the trees is really very interesting, as I learned from Fabio is in, in, in his work, is that the elephants have taste buds just like us, and they like to eat plants that are low in fiber they, and therefore high in protein. They leave alone plants and trees that are high in fiber and high in carbon. And so the way they walk around, they traipse on the small shoots, giving more space, and they eat them, leaving more space for the older trees to grow and therefore enhancing carbon above soil. By the way, they didn't even calculate the carbon in the roots, which is, which is even more. But they didn't have, at the time when they were doing that work, they didn't have enough funding to, to study you know, in, in, in the soil. And now his new work just came out in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. He expands, he and his colleagues, expands that work to all megafauna. So it turns out it's not only the elephants, it's the hippos, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the rhinos, it's the gorillas, it's all the big, big megafaunas also have a proclivity for plants that are low in fiber, high in protein, and they leave alone plants that are high in fiber, high in carbon. So nature, by, by living for itself, is providing a service to humanity. Now, if nature were truly infinite, as Mr. Francis Bacon would have us believe, then you don't have to worry about it because the price of carbon would be zero. We'd have plenty of nature. But as we know, the elephants are dying, the hippos are dying. We have one million species close to extinction. Forests are dying, oceans are dying. So what my work does partly is to recognize the value of a living nature so I can help stave off the killing and the destruction of nature by saying a living and thriving nature is far more valuable to us than a dead nature. Meaning, leave the elephant alone. He, will, he or she will provide you a service of at least $3 million. A dead elephant that is poached and sold for its ivory fetches maximum of $30,000. That's what it means. What it means for a poacher, because that's where, that's where the rubber hits the road, is, is for a poacher is a poacher can get five ten dollars because he doesn't get the thirty thousand, and risks being shot and captured. You're telling the poacher, why don't you be a citizen scientist? Why don't you be a guardian of this elephant, and have a salary for the rest of your life and a job that you're proud of, and you by looking after this elephant, the forest will do better as the scientists show. And so your health would be better. Your environment would be better. Okay. All agreed to, but wouldn't it be better if we just don't produce all that CO2? Oh, thank you for asking me this question. There's confusion out there. And, and, and the confusion is not among the scientists, it's among the, the, the public. They confuse flow with stock. So give me just a minute to explain what's going on. Suppose today you stop all the smokestacks in the world, miraculously, okay? You, 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 you move your wand, your magical wand, and all of the industries 
stop producing carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. we'll still die from carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere. Because the stock, see that's, so emissions, think of it as a, as a tap that's dripping water into a tub. A tub is the sky and the tub is full of carbon dioxide. So even if you shut off the valve, the, the tub is so full of carbon dioxide that we're going to bake to death. So you need to do two things. You need to get the companies to stop emitting carbon dioxide, but we still need to drain the tub. And to drain the tub, you need nature. There is no other solution but nature. So we need to do, so when people ask me this question about greenwashing, I said, this is not a fault of the companies. This is the fault of bad policy. Bad policy. Someone is, there's a dereliction of duty. Let me put this, I'm not gonna point fingers at people. Let me make a, a blanket statement. There's a dereliction of duty by those in charge. To, to, to design the right policy. And if I were in charge, I would design it this way. I would tell companies, you need to do two things. You need to cut your emissions to zero and you need to buy carbon because you need to drain the tub. It's not enough to shut down the, the valve. We need to, and, and the science is telling us nature can drain the tub by a minimum of 38%. Now, you ask me, who said that? If you read IPCC report 2016, it's there. The scientists put it there, but no one reads that report. I happen to be geek enough to actually read it. <laughs> and there you can see the tap and the tub. And you realize very quickly, oh my goodness, if we shut off all emissions today, so that stops all this idea of greenwashing, we're still going to die. We still need to drain the tub. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I, honestly, I, I, do you ever have the, the pleasure of presenting these concepts, even if they are so deadly to politicians? I would, I, I engage everybody. Yeah. Do they understand this? Yes, yes. And they shake their heads and, and they tell me, this is wonderful. I didn't know this. And, and I've had people telling me, how, do you, how dare you talk to the sinners? And, and I said, but the pleasure is in preaching to the sinners. What's the pleasure in preaching to the converts? <laughs> okay, interesting, interesting. But then, then, they are go, then they are going home into the election area and they are trying to maximize their elections for the next round of their political career. Indeed, but guess what? My, my proposal to the politician is you, you can be a politician and be good because what am I telling you? This, by the way, my proposition is not a philanthropic uh, proposition, which I'm going to explain in a minute. Phil when you look at what nature, so let's go back to nature. Nature helps us fight climate change. Okay. How much is nature getting in, a, in, in terms of funding? The gap to protect nature is about between 500 and 700 billion dollars a year. That's estimates of the industry itself, meaning... The philanthropic money that's coming to protect nature is woefully short. Now, you have two options there. You can continue to proselytize and appeal to people's better half or better self. And, but they're telling you, this is how much I'm willing to pay. We need to bridge the gap. The additional gap, the hundreds of billions, how are you going to bridge it? 
So what I came up with is the idea that we can make a pitch to the investment community, to the private sector, that nature is an investable opportunity. I don't want your, I mean, I don't, uh, uh, altruistic motivation and philanthropic motivation have reached its limit. We need another motivation that comes along and brings the money from the financial sector. And that's where my work sits, is how do I make it? How do I make the pitch to the corporations, to the private sector, that nature is investable? To the politicians, nature is investable. The first thing I had to do was to translate the knowledge from the science to the language of dollars and cents. So the policymaker, the politician who's running for elections, can, can understand what I'm talking about. Let me give you an example. You can go in front of a politician and say, we need to save the forest because of the birds and the trees and the biodiversity. They're going to look at you and say, oh, my goodness, when is this going to leave my room? Why? Because this guy here, the next guy going to walk in, is going to build a resort in this area, is going to generate so much money and so many jobs. So you feel good as a conservation guy. Well, I went to the politicians and I told them what I told them and I made them feel guilty. Good for you but you had zero effect on him. Because well, okay. zero effect. So, he, no, but I, I was there. I, I, I mean, so here's what you can do. You can look at the politicians and say, if you leave that forest alone, your community is going to make so much money. It's going to raise so much jobs. And he's going to look at you or she's going to look at you. What are you talking about? Somebody, I mean, a politician actually once told me, is this magic? I said, no, it's magical. The world now needs your forest, needs to pay you to keep the forest. In the past, we didn't need it. So you were cutting it down, selling it as timber. Now we need you to keep it alive and well and growing, and we're going to pay you for it. Not because we're good guys, because we need you to fight climate change. Okay, now let me try to summarize all this uh, um, this long uh, conversation. And basically what it comes to is, Leave nature alone, let it do its work, and, and pay for it. And live happily ever after. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, it, it may sound like as if, is this for real? It is because we are right now in need of nature. See, in the past, we thought nature was there forever. We needed to fight climate change. If we didn't need it to fight climate change, then this proposition won't work. It will fall back on people who love nature And on, they see nature for itself. And this is the philanthropic money that is woefully short. What the proposition now that we're making to Microsofts of the world, to the Googles of the world, to the GMs, to the Exxon, to all these, like, you, you made commitments to go carbon zero. Okay, let nature do its work and... Let's hope we can we can do it, and, and we all knew it that we need nature. Uh, so the, the question is, can we? Um, how can we accomplish that? And how can we? Uh, how can we get the change? And that's I think the big thing we will uh, have to work on in the in the, and we have to work on it fast because if we uh, if we are too uh, too slow, it will be too late. Uh, question? Absolutely. So I like the idea of the elephant running around and capturing the carbon as well as the um, the CO2 uh, sink that we have in the oceans. 
Um, I'm a big fan of um, evaluating systems and understanding them. But at one point, I think we humans have to learn very fast that we need to protect mother nature. And Beautiful. Think of this as bringing people on board on the investment motive and keeping them forever on ethical and moral motives. We are what we're doing. It's exactly it as as both of you and and I mean you, Christian and Dita, are saying. We we need to bring this current generation on board. I'm not worried about future generations, right? Uh, because they'll grow up in a household that sees nature as beneficial, and they de we develop a culture where nature and us we're partners in a in a world that that generates sustainable and shared prosperity forever. Two, the power of more. From Brockmeyer and Zalo. Innovation thinking. 